Well, today, of course, is Palm Sunday, and this day begins a sequence of events that climax on the hill of Calvary or Golgotha, but end with an empty tomb. And I probably say this too often during Lent, but I'm going to say it again lest we miss the point of Lent and even this Holy Week. We are not to rush to the resurrection. We need to sit with the death. Some people don't like the fact that on Palm Sunday we have a passion reading. They don't like the fact that we are already here on Palm Sunday talking about the death of Jesus. They don't like the fact that we wear red on this day to mark that death. But it seems fitting to orient us this week in the right direction, that we have an opportunity this week to to reenact in our own time on these dates and days in the year 2019, the events of Jesus' life. Our procession around the church was a, a small foretaste, perhaps, or a small recollection of what had happened in Jerusalem on that day, and a small foretaste of what will, in fact, happen eschatologically when we are all brought to heaven, where we will parade around endlessly proclaiming the greatness of God. But again, we need to stop today And not just think about it as that event on Palm Sunday. Just not think about the fact that how could Jesus be so welcomed into Jerusalem and then just five days later be so maligned to the point of suffering death? And we heard it and we even had to enter into it, did we not? Those words of the congregation of the people saying, crucify him, crucify him. This morning, Christina said, I love Holy Week. It's a busy week for me as a priest, but I think I know what she means, that we enter into this space this week, culminating in our Lenten journey, coming into Jerusalem ourselves, having to suffer with Christ, and we invite you to our Monday, Thursday service at 7 p.m., and then again on Good Friday at noon, where we enter enter into as deeply as we can the death of Jesus Christ this week. And so I get what she's saying. We enter this week hopeful because we know what's coming. We already know the end of the story. But yet I don't want us to rush there too quickly, that we need to pull up short, that we need to not think of this day as resurrection, even though every, every Sunday throughout the year, including the Sundays in Lent, are a little bit of the resurrection, Right? It's the Sundays in Lent, not the Sundays of Lent. If you count the days, the Sundays in Lent don't count towards the 40 days. They're outside of Lent, if you will, because we break our Lenten fast and we think about what Christ has done for us on those Sundays. But today is a little different than that because how could it feel like a little Easter when we just heard the reading of Jesus' death? So here we are on Palm Sunday in 2019, and I want to take the few moments that I have this morning, not only to orient us in that way to what is coming in the days ahead, but to focus our attention on that reading from Isaiah and the reading from Philippians. And I think I say this every year about this time, that the Philippians 2 reading is always a Christmas reading. Yet here it is in Passion Week and Holy Week, and it's all of a sudden now a Passion reading, an Easter reading. And Isaiah and Philippians, these two texts are talking with one another, I think. And so let me draw 
the attention to uh, our Isaiah passage that was read for us. This is one of the so-called suffering servant songs. There's four texts in the book of Isaiah that are uh, attributed to the servant. So they're called the servant songs, and the servant is suffering, so they're called the suffering servant songs. And there's a lot of, lot of debate among scholars about exactly who the suffering servant is, but we know it at least in part has to be Christological. That the suffering servant, these words, to some extent, are the words of Jesus himself in the Old Testament. And so the other passages, if you're interested, Isaiah 42 is a suffering servant song, Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 52. But here we are in Isaiah 50, the third of the four. And in the first verse, we read this. We heard it read, but let me read it again. The Lord God has given me, the suffering servant says, the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens his ear to hear as those who are taught. So the suffering servant says, my job is to exercise a ministry to those who are weary. And in the context of Isaiah, that's the people of God who are in exile. They're wearied because they are in exile. They are awaiting for the promises of God to come to fruition so that they will no longer have to be in exile. They are, they are waiting for that restoration to the promised land, their full and final restoration with their God, Yahweh. And so they're weary because they're waiting and waiting and waiting. They don't know when this is going to end, and they've grown weary with it. And so the suffering servant says, my job is to have a ministry to those who are weary. And so we see that the servant has an important ministry to those who are weary. They're exhausted. And so his ministry becomes very important because it's his job to sustain with a word, with his words, those who are weary. And again, maybe if we've done Lent right, <laughs> we're weary people. Right? That we've been journeying now to this week and we should be weary. We are worn out by our Lenten disciplines. We are worn out, perhaps, by the anticipation and the waiting of the celebration of the resurrection, which, again, we can't rush to, but we're weary people. And again, I, I say if we've done it right, not because there's a right way to do Lent per se, though I think there's less right ways to do Lent, but I trust all of you have been doing Lent well, and so we're probably a weary people. Not only that, but for those of us that teach at Biola, go to school at Biola, my own kids, and just school, everyone's weary, right? Everyone wants to be done. The end is in sight, right? Nathaniel was just lamenting with me today on the way to the store about the work he still has to do to graduate from the eighth grade. Brendan graduates from high school next month. I'm, I'm not convinced his head's in the game much at all anymore, right? And for that matter, neither is ours. We're party planning at this point, right? But and, and for those who don't live in that academic year, you're, you're probably just wearied by other things. We're all weary to some extent, but, but we're a weary people, and in part because it's the Lenten journey. It's nearing its end. And so like these people in exile, we long to be sustained with words in the word. And so the suffering servant does that. He sustains the weary with words, and so... We've been sustained along the way with words, both the words proclaimed from the scriptures, the word preached, I trust, the word himself when he comes to us in the Eucharist. And so we will be sustained again this evening in a similar manner. 
But the servant, again, has this very important ministry, and we should not miss it. And then in verses 5 through 6 of the Isaiah passage, we learn that the servant chooses this painful ordeal because he knows that his ministry matters. In other words, it is hard for him to have this ministry. Hence, he's the suffering servant. 5 and 6, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So in other words, God opened my ear and told me the ministry I'm going to have to have to these weary people And if he was tempted to turn and run, he didn't. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Of course, we can't read those verses without thinking about Jesus himself. But here the suffering servant Isaiah says, look, I'm being treated harshly for this word that I'm bringing to these weary exiles. And I didn't turn away from it. He did not run from it. He accepted this ministry given to him by God to minister to the weary people. And again, like, that is Jesus. He did not turn his back on the suffering in order to carry out his God-ordained ministry. And why doesn't the suffering servant turn his back and run? Well, verse 7, the Lord helps me. Verse 9, the Lord God helps helps me and because of that he says i have not been disgraced therefore i have set my face like a flint and i know that i shall not be put to shame he who vindicates is near why didn't i turn my back why did i accept this important ministry because god will sustain me god sustains me though he's been disgraced it doesn't matter god has sustained him so he sets his face like flint And he knows his vindication is near. And I love verse 8 because I think he gets bold at this point. Therefore, who will contend with me? In modern day parlance, that's kind of a bring it on. Right? God is sustaining me. Who is my adversary? He says. I think he knows the answer to that. But because he's being sustained by God, he's literally saying, who's my adversary? No one is my adversary when I'm sustained by God. Let my adversary come near to me kind of boasts and warns or challenges not sure exactly what that is there because again the lord god helps me so we have a man a suffering servant who was called to ministry to these exiles people wearied because of their circumstances right this is not an easy task because people are out to hurt him they're out to strike him to pull out his beard to hit him to disgrace him to spit on him But it's okay, God helps him, so he accepted the ministry, sets his face against those who are against him, and does the work that God has called him to do. Is that not the same message that we hear in Philippians 2? I mean, is that not the work of Jesus? Again, I don't, I don't, I'm not really bothered by how many options there might be of who the suffering servant is. Without a doubt, it's Christological. Because in verses 5 through 7 of Philippians, Paul tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a what? Servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, Jesus took on a human form, though he was God. He turned his back on that in some way, shape, or form, How remains a mystery, 
right? But he empties himself and he comes to earth to do what? To deliver those who are in exile. Because since Adam and Eve made that fateful choice, we are a people in exile. We are not home. We are a people in exile. And on that day, at that time, Jesus came to earth to minister to the exiles. And again, inasmuch as if this was Christmas Day, we would be talking about the infant in the manger. Now we're talking about the man who turns his face towards the cross. Because he comes to do this important and essential ministry for us. Part of what makes the congregational responses so difficult today, and if you think today's are hard, come back on Good Friday. Come back at noon on Friday when we are saying these painful responses in a service that's just cloaked literally in darkness and death. So we say those words, we enter into that space that though we're people in exile, we're also the people out there shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Yet he came to us and for us. Again, we are in exile. It doesn't matter how well your life is going. It doesn't even matter how bad your life is going, whatever those phrases and terms even mean for each one of us. We are in exile because of sin. We're born with it. We commit it. We can't escape it. And so in our exile, Jesus came to us. Why? Because we chose not to go to God. And if the suffering servant thought his exile was painful, think about Jesus's. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not enough that the Son of God died, but he died in one of the most ignoble ways imaginable. To die on a cross was to die in the most terrible way. But it's okay because that painful ordeal is his ministry. And that ministry matters. And not just subjectively to each one of us, but it mattered to him. Jesus came of his own volition. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He chose to come in human form. He chose to die. Could Jesus have not called the legions of angels to his side in the Garden of Gethsemane? Of course he could have. But he didn't. He chose that painful ordeal because he understood that his ministry of dying for us mattered. It was his ministry. It was his mission. It's the thing he had been sent for. So like the suffering servant, right, he does not turn his back on it. He knows what he needs to do. Yes, in the garden he said, if this cup could pass from me, but nonetheless, your will be done. Jesus wasn't wavering. Jesus was saying, if there's another way, great, but I'm still ready to go and die for these people. Including this bozo Peter, right? Who will deny me three times. These men who have been with me but still don't get it. This man who's just betrayed me even. I will die for those people. And how does he do this? 
Well, we saw that the suffering servant was sustained by God. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God, the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want to think of that phrase tonight in the context of even in his death, Jesus was dying as a king. That even before his resurrection, Jesus was still the king of the universe. And therefore, everyone owed him obedience. Every knee would bow and every tongue will and would confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But how much more because of the resurrection? It would take us too long tonight to go into the why of the resurrection, but the answer is simple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our death is in vain. So Jesus couldn't just die, he had to resurrect. He had to come back to life again. And because of that, that's the work of God in him and his own work as God. So God rewards him for that death, if you will, but also sustains him through it. Just as the suffering servant was helped by God and thereby set his face like a flint and kind of said, bring it on. I mean, in one sense, how much more is Jesus? Except Jesus' bring it on is to death and Satan. I like to measure someone up before I would be so bold as to stand against them and say, bring it on. But Jesus stood there in front of death and Satan and said, bring it on. What are you going to do? Their victory was temporary, and Jesus knew it, because God sustained him even in that death. So this night on Palm Sunday, as we enter into this Holy Week, as we anticipate the painful death of Jesus, and as we remember it from beginning of Thursday night and into Friday, and then as we wait patiently for the glorious resurrection, which we will celebrate here on Saturday evening with our great Easter vigil, we need to be reminded that we are the people in exile, that Jesus has come for us. And that he did it because that ministry mattered. Our lives were at stake. And that alone was enough for Jesus to come. But as Jesus, God sustained him. That beyond this painful death and crucifixion, there is resurrection. And we will celebrate that later this week. But tonight, may we remember that Jesus is our suffering servant, that we are the people in exile, desperately in need of what he can bring. So let us not forget that in the days ahead. Let us remember our sin and call to mind that it is we who have made this necessary on the part of Jesus. It is we who have sent him to the cross. But at the same time, he understood the importance of it. And so he willingly subjected himself to death for you and for me. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.